Fired Up show starts right now. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Welcome back to the Fired Up podcast. Uh, We're glad that you clicked in to join us this week. Uh, We've got a uh, jam-packed agenda we're going to talk about. Uh, a mix of politics and COVID and uh, just lots of information we think that uh, you're going to like hearing and really that you need to hear. So let's get it kicked off, as always, with our review of where we stand with the COVID pandemic. Uh, Currently uh, in the U.S., uh, we have 70.5 million cases 866,000 people have uh, died from the disease, and there have been 531 million people who have received at least one shot of the COVID vaccine, and um, 58.2% of the American population is fully COVID vaccinated. So we continue to make some progress, although the latest variant uh, has uh, seen some surging in in several areas of the country where you know there there've been an increase in the number of hospitalizations uh, from the disease and the number of reported cases. What we are seeing, according to information from the CDC and the World Health Organization and the other medical and scientific uh, outlets out there, is an overall dropping of the rate of infection and the rate of hospitalization due to the Omicron variant. We are still seeing the Delta variant uh, having its effect in areas of the country where uh, either vaccination rates are low uh, or, you know, uh, mask wearing and other protective measures just aren't uh, being uh, practiced and enforced. So, you know, the message is clear out there, people. Please make sure that either you are wearing your mask when you need to, practicing your social distancing, or the best practice of all, getting your initial vaccinations completed. And for those of you that are vaccinated, getting the booster shot. These are the processes. These are the medical procedures. These are the scientific answers that will help keep us uh, safe and help reduce the spread of the COVID vaccine. Uh, it, it is clear that you know while we have made tremendous progress over the last two years in our battle with this pandemic, uh, we still are seeing surges uh, coming out of the Omicron camp. So let, let's make sure we're doing what we need to do to help keep everybody uh, safe, keep your loved ones safe, and so forth. So As always on this show, we talk about the political machine here in the United States, what's going on, what's causing all the buzz and the spin. And uh, the past week has been uh, just jam-packed with political news. And we're going to touch on some of the the key stories that um, have been out there in the media but haven't necessarily gotten the full depth of treatment uh, that we try to give it here on Fired Up. Uh, So, you know, first things first, uh, this past week, President Biden gave an address on the uh, status of not only the infrastructure bill, he had a press conference where he addressed concerns about what's going on with the Soviet Union uh, and uh, Ukraine and the, the fact that it looks more and more like Vladimir Putin is uh, giving strong consideration to invading Ukraine and what the U.S. response to that would be. Uh, There's been a lot of feedback uh, given on the fact that President Biden seems to have been saying that the uh, U.S. would uh, respond in an economic uh, vein with, you know, more substantial and, and deeper sanctions against uh, the, the Russian state if they make a, you know, uh, a move into Ukraine. Uh, the European allies are not clear, uh, giving clear signals, rather, as to how they are going to participate, but it's generally accepted that, you know, if the U.S. is, is uh, authorizing sanctions against Russia, 
that uh, the U European allies, our European allies, will stand with us. Um, contrasting that approach, you know, and, and in general, one of the things this week showed us is if we look carefully, we can see something of a clear contrast between uh, current President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump, not just in their handling of, you know, the, the Russian aggression against Ukraine, but when you listen to his press conference, uh, you have to give President Biden credit for the depth and breadth of his answers. Uh, he was was clearly, um, you know, knowledgeable about the the subjects that he was discussing, um, and you know, unlike his predecessor, uh, it, the press conference wasn't a talk about. Uh, how well he's done or size of crowds or, you know, and so forth. It was much more substantive, in my opinion. Um, now, did, you know, President Biden make some gaffes and, and you know, some, some strange statements? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, it, it, is, it is tough to stand up in front of the press corps uh, and answer questions asked contemporaneously. Um, I, I didn't see the press conference, you know, visually, but I listened to it, you know, on on the radio during during my commute home, and you know, it, it's clear that he has a much deeper grasp and understanding of foreign policy. Uh, relationships and you know the the relationship of the United States in in the global scheme of the the political realm. So you know, as I listened to President Biden's answers, uh, I didn't agree with some of them. I think uh, I, he's a little he was a little bit soft on some of the answers, uh, and that just could be that. The, the answers to the questions require a little more research and a little more detail to come out. As I said, if, if you're standing up and you're contemporaneously answering questions from the, uh, from the press, uh, it's very difficult uh, if they're asking things that you may or may not have uh, gone into the depth to match the level of the question they're asking. Now, I hope that made sense, but what I'm saying is that you know, you may have studied up on a particular subject, but the reporter may have asked a question on that subject in an area that you may or may not have uh, prepared for as deeply as you have with others because you anticipated questions coming from a certain area. Um, you know, so, but again, I go back to, I couldn't help but think as I listened to President Biden answer the questions and think back on, you know, the press conferences that former President Trump held um, and just the stark contrast between the, the depth of the answers, um, the lack of the, you know, personal uh, aggrandizement that tended to frame uh, many of the answers that former President Trump would give in a press conference situation, um, just overall, you know, Biden receives generally higher marks than Trump for his level of, of detail, of, of answering the question that is asked of him. And <laughs> you, you have to understand most politicians, I won't say never, but frequently will not answer the question that they're asked. They will generally uh, divert off into discussing a point uh, more relevant to what they want to discuss rather than to ask the question posed. And it, this is not you know, a, a Biden versus Trump thing. This has been true of politicians going back as far as I can remember. Um, so, you know, we... we with Biden's press conference, I think we got a very stark uh, comparison opportunity uh, between the current president 
and his immediate predecessor in terms of their style of dealing with the press. Now, I will say that one complaint that I have heard was, you know, Biden was clearly picking from a list of uh, reporters uh, that may or may not have been vetted ahead of time in terms of the questions they were going to ask. Um, and it, it was less actually of a more freewheeling uh, question and answer than we had gotten with President Trump, uh, even though uh, the, the questions asked and the answers given uh, were, were sometimes less than satisfying. Um, but, you know, it, it did speak to the fact that uh, some of these questions look like they may have been seeded or that the conference was more staged than we've seen in, in prior presidential press conferences. Uh, so, you know, it, it, while refreshing to hear the words from the president's mouth rather than, you know, the, the press secretary giving the answers based on what the, the president has laid out are his concerns and, and thoughts about a specific issue. Uh, there still is a, a little bit of a lack of um, uh, detail that, you know, frequently we, we want to get. And, you know, as I said, politicians will frequently um, take a roundabout answer to a question rather than just, you know, give it a yes, but, or a no, and here's why, or a yes, and here's why kind of answer. Biden was better at it than Trump, make no mistake, but still there were some questions asked that, uh, in my opinion, the answers were thin. We'll, we'll, we'll leave it at that. So, you know, I, I'm curious as to what your impressions are of, you know, President Biden's press conference. I know it was uh, several days ago, and in fact, you know, by the time you're listening to this podcast, it may actually be more than a week ago. But I'd really like to know what you think of President Biden's uh, press conference, both in terms of its substance and its style. Again, I think he uh, was much more of a master of the information and, and facts of the matter than President Trump had been in, in you know, the press conferences that he talked about. So, you know, send an email to the show, firedupradio at yahoo.com, and let me know your thoughts. Uh, really interested to find out. Um, so that was one of the subjects that, uh, that came up over the weekend. It was very uh, a very anticipated press conference, by the way. Um, you know, one of the one of the things and and I want to spend some time on this um, because we've now crossed the threshold of a full year of the Biden presidency, which gives us a a reasonable amount of information, uh, a reasonable amount of exposure to the Biden, the Biden administration so that we can, in fact, begin to, to draw some conclusions and some comparisons and contrast between the Biden and the Trump administrations, uh, as well as between the Democrat and Republican parties uh, under the Biden administration comparison to the Trump administration. So, you know, uh, want to talk a little bit uh, about my opinions on where we stand with the Democrats and the Republicans uh, under the current um, uh, political environment that we have going on. And in particular, um, you know, I have some thoughts on the Democrats' approach to the infrastructure bills that the president wanted to uh, get done as part of his flagship uh, legislative agenda. So we'll um, drop a little break in here, and when we come back, we're going to talk uh, a little bit deeply about the first year of the Biden administration. And you know, I don't, I don't think I'm going to give it a report card, but I may give it, you know, kind of my impression of 
success or failure. So with that being said, I have a bone to pick with both the Democrat and Republicans, uh, particularly based on what I've seen happen in the last uh, week to 10 days. So we're going to get into that in a second. All right. You're listening to the Fired Up podcast and we'll be right back. Coming back to our discussion and um, moving to another page, as I said, um, I have a bone to pick with both the Democrat and Republican parties uh, as they currently exist. Um, And, you know, tossing a coin, uh, I'm going to start with the Democrats. Uh, They are the they are the party in power. um, And, you know, I, I have to take into account that most of my um, target practice over the last couple of years has been aimed at the Republicans. Uh, so, you know, it, it's with no small amount of fairness that I say I'm going to uh, pick a bone with the Democratic Party for uh, the first segment here. And basically, you know, Democrats, Democratic leadership, um, in, in my opinion, you know, you have truly dropped the ball and let us down. Um, I think that the ideas that were put forward in the Biden agenda with what he wanted to accomplish uh, in terms of legislation getting through and the things that he wanted to do uh, for this country are notable and laudable. I think the problem is they're trying to squeeze, uh, forgive the pun, they were trying to squeeze an elephant through a garden hose. Uh, I think this, this past week where the vote on the second infrastructure bill, the so-called soft infrastructure, uh, or the, the human infrastructure bill that was proposed by the Biden administration was uh, basically uh, frozen in place. Uh, I, I won't say that it is dead, but it is definitely not moving forward in its current form, uh, thanks in part to the uh, actions or lack of actions of two Democratic senators, uh, which basically took away the 51 vote uh, majority that would have been necessary to get it through. Uh, but more than that, it also reflected uh, just a, a, I don't know, a lack of understanding, a lack of comprehension of the fact that there are some bills that are just too big to pass in current form. There is nothing wrong, and there, there should have been nothing wrong with the Democrats uh, proposing a series of smaller legislative packages, perhaps you know one dealing with uh, education reforms and then another one that dealt with you know, the, the uh, internet and that infrastructure and so forth, rather than to try and, and package it all together in, you know, what was originally a $3 trillion package and, and at end ended up being a $1.75 trillion package, um, you, you just invited the, the negativity to come out because you proposed something that was so large. Uh, and, you know, the old saying... And again, forget forgive the the image pun, but you know the old saying that goes, "How do you eat an elephant one bite at a time, rather than trying to consume the whole thing in one bite?" Uh, I think the Democrats would have been much better served had they initially, from Jump Street, you know, submitted a series of legislative uh, bills progressing through that would have addressed everything that they want to get in their infrastructure program, uh, but would have taken it in stages. We have been battling with, you know, the the mansion cinema anti-filibuster issue and, you know, the the why aren't there no uh, progressive Republicans who will, you know, come out from behind the party wall 
clearly for things that they have said in public that they are in favor of, yet every Republican, all 50 Republicans are in lockstep. Um, that's, that's somewhat never been the case. There have always been Republicans who have diverged from the Republican parties on ideological basis or on you know some other characterization. And you know here we have all of them. It's like they're locked up behind a wall. You know, and I guess essentially they are. Um, now, granted, you know, it, it, it cannot be taken and, and shortchanged the amount of uh, influence and, you know, sway that, you know, former President Trump still holds over the Republican Party. Uh, and, you know, we have seen and, and heard time and time again how so many Republicans do. Uh, have have uh, basically you know gone and kissed the ring of you know the Donald and you know bent to his will. Uh, there's been much talk made about how the newly elected governor of Virginia, uh, who is a Republican, uh, how he walked the tightrope of courting you know the the. Republican political base without um, marrying himself, you know, extensively to the former president, uh, basically speaking on the former president's principles without having him set foot in the state on his behalf. Um, and we'll see more of that. You know, one, one thing you can learn from American politics is that once one politician find something that works, lots of politicians jump on the bandwagon. And it doesn't just have to be, you know, an election thing. Look at the uh, proliferation of states that are following in the footsteps of what Texas did in its, you know, restrictions on abortion in that state. Whether or not they, they survive muster through the Supreme Court and, you know, with whatever happens, to uh, Roe v. Wade and to Casey, um, you know, other states are following in the same footsteps, up to, up to and including California, which is a Democratic state, who is using the same principles to advance some of the Democratic programs they want to get done in in the Golden State. So, you know, we we clearly are political leaders not only learn from mistakes sometimes, um, but they also definitely learn from successes and adapt and integrate successes in one political market into another political market on a routine basis. Um, but, you know, getting back to what I, I think the Democrats, you know, really, really just messed up a, a great opportunity to come in off of the energy of the anti-Trump feeling that persisted through the country. And in my opinion, they squashed it by trying to push these massive bills through as one big piece rather than, you know, come at it in a logical progression of, you know, steps going through the process. So maybe over, you know, a, a two-year period, they would have gotten, you know, five or six or seven or ten smaller packages through the legislature rather than trying to get these two massive, uh, you know, six trillion dollar in total packages that just gave the Republicans too much ammunition to, to hang the cost of these programs around their neck like an anchor. Um, so, you know, that that's my bone with the Democratic leadership and, you know, the political uh, the, uh, elite of the Democrat Party. Um, you try to do too much. Now, let's be clear. The Republicans, and, you know, I, I spent part of this week going through and, and looking at the, the political platforms 
of both the Democrat and Republican Party. And notably, um, while the Democrats had a, a fairly well-detailed uh, platform from the 2020 election, the Republicans didn't put forward a new platform. Rather, they carried forward the platform from the 2016 election. And in, in my reading of it, uh, I was, was struck by how little they actually modified or changed from their approach in 2016 to uh, what happened in 2020. Uh, even given the fact that the pandemic, by the time the 2020 election uh, and, and the conventions prior to the election had come out, was already in, in full swing in this country. Uh, it, as a result of the pandemic, the Republican convention was trimmed back from you know, almost 3,000 people attending to you know, something around 400 or 500 delegates attending the convention. That was the impact the pandemic had on the political system uh, in, you know, late 2020 coming up to the national elections in November. So, you know, the, the Republicans didn't put out a platform, a new platform, or even if they were going to use the 2016 platform, they didn't even uh, go into a great amount of effort um, to make it more relevant to the situations on the ground, you know, as of the 2020 election. Um, there was a lot of difference between uh, the way the country was in 2016 and the way the country was in 2020. Uh, much of that driven by you know, co you know, coronavirus and COVID-19 and the response and the pandemic shutdowns and all of the, the, the impacts that COVID had on this country, not the least of which was, you know, the voting process that happened in the middle of it. Now, we caveat all of that by saying that the 2020 election was of such historic importance that the turnout in, in terms of the overall number of people who turned out to vote was the largest in American voting history. Um, that should not go unnoticed uh, to, to give you the idea of how important the political situation was uh, in this country around the elections and how charged and charged up the electorate was about the respective parties and their candidates. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the Republicans were faultless in how they prosecuted the uh, election of 2020. Um, again, in my opinion, I think they they gave, they deeded uh, too much uh, power and authority to um Donald Trump, yes, he was the incumbent president. He was the sitting president. Uh, he is the head of the Republican Party. I get that. But they either chose not to um, disagree with him in, in terms of direction of the party. Um, you know, I think uh, even though, you know, they they didn't want to do it, I think they needed to come out with a fresh platform for the Republican Party to run on. Uh, and, you know, between you, me and the signpost, uh, part of that may have been um, that, you know, the the people behind the scenes who were were running the campaign and, you know, and, and all of that really didn't think perhaps that it was necessary. And again, it's my opinion um, I'm not a Republican strategist, but I'm looking at it like you all are looking at it from the outside. There was a level of disorganization and infighting and, you know, stuff that seemed to be bubbling under the surface that just seemed to keep derailing um, the Republican effort just as it was, you know, gaining traction. Um, it's clear that the idea to not 
you know, insist and, and apply whatever leverage you could to have, um, you know, Donald Trump discuss his bringing out the vaccines and what he did for, you know, the uh, coronavirus uh, effort once uh, the effort was started. Now, yeah, granted, they were late to the party, but, you know, there was no doubt that Operation Warp Speed was a, a political victory unrealized by the Republican Party. They could have gotten a lot more mileage out of that uh, if they could have, you know, had the president, um, you know, President Trump uh, make that a cornerstone of, you know, his campaign, you know, and and speak truthfully about how his team brought the vaccines to market in record time. Um, I think, you know, on the Democratic side, uh, there seemed to be some temerity on the Democrat side about going for the jugular with how the Republicans handled the, the COVID pandemic, you know, overall, as well as the, the handling of the, you know, abortion situations in Texas and voter registration and all of those things that kept going on. The Republicans seem to be, well, let me just say that the president and his team in the Republican Party were just laser focused on, you know, lawsuits and, you know, the the allegations that the election was stolen and and, you know, that the 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 voting would be rigged and there were all these problems and the voting machines were, you know, were rigged by the Democrats, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, so that they really took their eye off the ball of the things that could have given them the victory. Um, and, and again, I'm, I'm not the only one. There have been numerous political uh, analysts and, and pundits who have said that if Donald Trump had, you know, focused on their efforts against the, the pandemic, more to the point, if they had come out earlier uh, and talked about the success of Operation Warp Speed, among other things, that, you know, the outcome of the election would have been different. So, you know, it, it's clear that both sides made some critical uh, strategic and tactical errors in the 2020 campaign. I think the Democrats have continued to make tactical errors in their pursuit of the economic agenda that the president has laid out. Um, and now they're having to backpedal and resubmit and try and get these individual pieces of legislation into the system ahead of what is likely to be uh, significant losses in both the House and the Senate for the Democratic Party, resulting in them losing control of those two bodies of government. Um, which, you know, given that Biden was Obama's vice president, that I, I that boggles the mind as to why that just seems, you know, to to be, you know, an albatross that hangs around the neck of, you know, President Biden. That you know, yes, it is true. Historically, the party in power always loses seats uh, in the midterm election. Uh, I think there have only been two occasions in our history where that hasn't been the case. Um, but, you know, it, it is still it, it is the the administration in powers battle to lose, not the opposition's battle to win in the midterms, you know, if there is a record to stand on, if there is a record of uh, accomplishment and success, and that record is put in front of the American people consistently, continuously, in detail, this is what we've done for you. What you're hearing now is the Biden administration is just now starting to have more substantive conversations about what they have accomplished in their first year and what remains to be accomplished out through the midterms. Um, 
you know, there, there's, there's just been too much dropping of the ball by the current administration. And on the Republican side, you guys um, need to, to capitalize on these, these tactical mistakes by the Biden administration more so than you need to just, you know, badmouth Biden and, and, you know, talk about all of those elements that you've been talking about for the first year of the administration. Uh, if you want to cement, you know, an overwhelming control of the House and the Senate, you need to paint that picture uh, clearly, in detail, in depth, and, and hang that squarely around the neck of the Biden administration. Not how much, you know, you can't stand Biden and not, you know, his speaking style stinks and all of this personal level attack. You need to dive into the substance of what is wrong with the Biden Democratic Party. Where have they failed the American people? You know, whether it, you, you can paint that in a true uh, fact-based sense is going to go a long way to determine how well you are going to do in the midterms at the end of this year. So some food for thought. As I said, both parties um, have really, really, you know, dropped the ball. And, you know, for, for those of you, by the way, who are independent or progressives, don't, don't think you guys are, are dodging a bullet here. I'm going to uh, spend time on next week's podcast, and we're going to dive into uh, where the progressive and independent movement has succeeded and where they have dropped the ball themselves in terms of uh, exercising the one simple fact that is irrefutable. Progressives and independents outnumber both Democrats and Republicans uh, two to one, essentially. Um, there are more progressive and independent voters in this country than there are registered Democrats or registered Republicans. And, you know, while I, I, I hear progressives talking and, and strategizing uh, what seems like a very good uh, response to current events, I hear less uh, of what they are working on for the midterms and for the national election in 24. Um, who are their candidates? What are their opinions? What are the platforms? So I'll be digging into that. I'll be doing research on that over the course of this week. And we will hopefully have that content on next week's podcast. So there's something you can look forward to, particularly if you are someone who is progressive or independent, uh, whether you lean Democratic or lean Republican or not. So, um, all right, we're going to change pages here. We're going to change gears here and talk about a couple of other things that have gone on this past week. So, you know, so let's take a real quick little break for uh, some public service words uh, from your friends here at Fired Up and WJMS Media. We'll be right back on the other side of the information. Stay tuned. If you are sick with COVID-19 or think you might have it, stay home except to get medical care. Monitor your symptoms. If your symptoms get worse, contact your doctor. Get rest and stay hydrated. Avoid public transportation, ride-sharing, or taxis. And take these six steps to protect others. Wear a mask over your mouth and nose if you must be around other people. Cover your mouth and nose with a tissue when you cough or sneeze. Clean your hands often with soap and water or use hand sanitizer, especially after coughing or sneezing. As much as possible, stay in a separate room and away from others in your home. Avoid sharing personal household items such as dishes, utensils, towels, or bedding. Wash these items thoroughly after using them. And clean all surfaces that are touched often, like counters and doorknobs, every day. To learn more, 
visit cdc.gov. And we're back. If you followed this show uh, over the course of our uh, stint on WJMS radio uh, up through uh, the end of last year, you are familiar with the subject that we're going to touch on next because we've talked about this on multiple occasions on the radio version of the show. And that is the subject of congressional district and redistricting that is currently going on in this country. Uh, in, in case you've been off planet and haven't been keeping up, uh, this is what is known as a census year, uh, or 2020 was a census year, and that every 10 years we take a count, and out of that count, the uh, seats in the U.S. House of Representatives are reapportioned among the states. Uh, based on the uh, and any shifts in population so that each house uh, seat represents roughly the same number of American citizens as all the others. All right, this applies to the, uh, the House of Representatives only. Every uh, state has uh, two senators and they are not affected by redistricting. Uh, the redistricting is handled by the states themselves. Uh, the federal government plays no role in, in choosing how many uh, house seats each state has. That is purely done at the state level. So that being said, you can see, and if, you know, we, we, we talk about on this show quite a bit, uh, words like gerrymander and um you know, voter restrictions and, and, and so forth, where the redistricting plans, uh, especially for those states that are held by Republican uh, control, that is a Republican governor and Republican uh, legislature, um, have been working, you know, to consolidate the number of seats that are controlled by Republicans in those states and this has been something that has been going on for the better part of nearly, oh, 60 years or so. Uh, if you look up something called the Southern Strategy, you will see uh, exactly what we're talking about. Uh, I know we've also talked about it on this show. You can go into the archives and find it. Uh, it actually was a subject of discussion, I believe, in the second broadcast of Fired Up. So if you go listen to uh, show number two uh, or perhaps show number one, uh, we started the discussion on the Southern strategy there. So what have we got this week that came out? Well, more states have, conti have continued to complete their maps. And what we are hearing is that uh, there are two two trains of thought going on with regard to uh, the congressional district maps. Uh, one says that uh, the Republicans uh, in those states that are controlled by Republicans are looking to consolidate those seats that they already hold to make them essentially more bulletproof uh, and more likely to remain in Republican control, regardless almost of, of what the population uh, shifts are. Uh, and, and keep in mind that whatever is finalized here stays in play for the next 10 years. Um, and, you know, in Democratic states, uh, many of the same issues are, are being uh, debated and discussed. But something new came across my radar uh, in this past week in that there are several uh, Republican states, Republican-run states, uh, where, you know, not only um, were they not expecting uh, any, any intra-party uh, ruckus uh, based on the unveiled redistricting proposals, um, but there are some in these Republican states that are asking the question, why don't we use the gerrymander process to squeeze the, the Democrats into as few districts as possible? And you know, an article that came out on the 20th uh, in Politico, and you can find it on their website, um, 
one of the things that they're doing in the state of Missouri is they're looking, and when I say they, I mean uh, the Secretary of State and two Senate candidates are looking at the process that Missouri has gone through with its map drawing to suggest why not uh, go back and gerrymander it further to relegate Democrats to only one district. Now, uh, Missouri has eight congressional seats. Right now, Republicans control six of them. Democrats control two. They want to see about redrawing the map so that Democrats would only have one seat in the state of Missouri. And it's not just there. Uh, there are others that uh, who are looking at very similar scenarios. Um, and, you know, it, it's as the article says, the aggression on display in Missouri is also cropping up elsewhere. In Tennessee, Republicans are already successfully advancing a plan to crack Nashville into three districts, dooming Democratic Representative Jim Cooper. In Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis was so displeased with his legislature's proposals to redraw their maps that he suggested one that would give Republicans 18 or more of the state's 28 districts. Kansas Republicans this week revealed a plan that would crack the Kansas City area into two districts through which they uh, could have gone even further in targeting Representative Sharice Davids, who is a Democrat of Kansas. So, you know, we are seeing that the, the battle lines are not just drawn on uh, which party is going to have the majority of seats, but battle lines are being drawn within the party as to the extent of, you know, how deeply these seats are going to go red or are going to go blue. And the same thing um, that, you know, is going on in, in some Republican districts are also going on in Democratic districts as well. You know, there are Democratically uh, run states who are going through the process of redistricting and we're seeing gerrymandering uh, have a similar effect there as they seek to squeeze Republicans into as few districts as possible in order to maintain control for uh, that uh, for those states. Um, and there are, you know, a couple of states uh, such as Illinois, Oregon, Nevada, and New Mexico, uh, where Democrats uh, have missed no chance to carve aggressive gerrymanders uh, to protect their positions in those states. Uh, and, you know, the, the thought is, is one not only of voter protection and preservation, but also it's in terms of helping to build out the you know democratic base uh, for the, uh, the for the strength of the party going forward, and you know it's clear that you know the Republicans are are paying attention to this, and are you know mentioning that it appears the Democrats uh, are being more ruthless in the redistricting effort than the Republicans are, which you know frankly I find hard to believe. Uh, just considering that Republicans control more states, um, you know, and it it's it goes to something that we the voters need to stay aware of and pay attention to, to look and see exactly what what is happening to the districts that we vote in. Uh, you need to make sure that you know your registered vote, uh, you know, is in. A, a district where, you know, essentially you have access to uh, and is not gerrymandered to a point where it becomes a struggle for you or others in your area to exercise their rights to vote. So, you know, as always, we need to make sure that the action steps we're taking are, you know, maintaining our level of uh, awareness and education uh, maintaining and increasing our level of action and activism and maintaining and elevating our level of communication with our elected officials, both local, state and federal, uh, to let them know that, you know, a, a excessive and extensive gerrymandering is something that, you know, we the voters 
really won't tolerate and they need to take care with that. Another thing to keep in mind, and this is an argument that the Democrats have been making consistently over the last year, is that the voting rights legislation bills, uh, the John Lewis voting rights bill and the the second bill uh, to address voting rights, uh, both of which are currently stalled in Congress, are designed to address this very thing by setting up you know, federal standards that would essentially uh, eliminate uh, partisan gerrymandering uh, by the states. Uh, and as you can imagine, uh, um, among Republicans, these bills are extremely unpopular and the Republicans are doing everything they can and pulling out all the stops to defeat these bills and make sure that they do not come out of Congress and go to the president's desk for signature. Uh, we will see how that plays out. Uh, again, if that is something that is near and dear to your heart, absolutely you want to be engaged with getting that message to your elected leaders. Um, some other things that uh, came up this week uh, revolving around how the battle is raging over the filibuster, um, you know, and here again, as I said in the the early part of the of the the cast, is you know the Democrats have uh, played a very poor uh, tactical game, and this includes how they have uh, been addressing the notion of the filibuster in the uh, in the Senate in Washington D.C. Um, you know, Chuck Schumer, who is the Senate Majority Leader, uh, by virtue of the fact that uh, Vice President Harris sits as President of the Senate and breaks the tie, so has been Majority Leader of a Senate which he really uh, has not had a majority on with respect to the filibuster bill because of the uh, Senators Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin. Who have consistently communicated that you know they will not vote to weaken or eliminate the the filibuster regardless of what the underlying issue is um, you know and that this this lack of uh, unity or party unity on their part uh, is part of what has hamstrung passage of the second part of President Biden's uh, uh, infrastructure bill uh, which has held up the, the two voting rights bills that I've just mentioned and have created just a much higher mountain and much harder climb for any legislation that Democrats want to get out of the Senate and onto the president's desk uh, where, you know, Manchin and Cinema are not on board with them. So, you know, they, they have spent, you know, months talking with Senator Cinema and Senator Manchin um, to, to try and get them to come on board with the party and vote in unison to get these important uh, legislative bills uh, done. Uh, both of them have, you know, essentially refused or sat on their hands uh, or otherwise obstructed and delayed uh, the passage of these bills, and you know, it, it is something that is going to need to be addressed. I think we can play a role in this, uh, particularly if you are a resident of West Virginia or a resident of Arizona. Uh, you need to be regularly communicating with your senators uh, and let them know where you stand and where you want them to stand on you know the issues of voter rights and you know the the uh, filibuster, uh, it it doesn't have to be just just to remember to remember and re uh, reemphasize the filibuster doesn't have to be eliminated. It can be modified. So-called carve-outs can be made in the bill in order to do specific things. For example. Most recently, a carve-out in the filibuster was made so that the Senate could vote 
on uh, a debt ceiling increase to avoid a a financial crisis uh, with the American credit rating. Another carve out was made uh, by the Republicans to allow for uh, federal judges uh, and Supreme Court judges to be appointed on a simple majority. This is how, um, you know, former majority leader, now minority leader Mitch McConnell got three uh, uh, conservative justices appointed to the Supreme Court uh, for, you know, former President Trump and gave us the current 6-3 Supreme Court conservative majority. It is possible for these things to be done if the, the measure is important enough in the eyes of those who stand in the way. Um, but, you know, the, the, the mansion cinema blockade has not allowed uh, that to occur with other legislation that the rest of the Democratic majority feels is vitally important, namely the voting rights uh, bills and the uh, second phase of the infrastructure bill. Uh, those two have been held up by the obstruction of Senators Manchin and Cinema. Somehow, some way, the Democrats are going to have to come up with a method to, quote, handle these two. Uh, and, you know, not for nothing, but we may have to uh, suffer through these two being in position until their terms come up, uh, both of which I believe are in 2024, uh, at which point, you know, it may be that the majority in the Senate will already have been lost. Uh, so therefore, you know, their obstruction is moot uh, because the Democrats will no longer control the Senate. And, you know, they can be uh, fully primaried and, you know, hopefully voted out of office. Uh, although, given the nature of the state of West Virginia, uh, it is unlikely that there is a Democrat out there that West Virginians would uh, vote for, um, similarly to as they've done with Manchin. West Virginia is a fairly solid uh, red state. Um, but, you know, stranger things have happened. So we'll keep an eye on all of that. Uh, and, you know, lastly, as always, you know, our call to action is communicate. Uh, you don't have to be a member of, or a resident of uh, any given district to communicate with an elected official there. Um, and, you know, uh, Senator Bernie Sanders had given a little tip on how to make that happen and have them read your concerns before they figure out that you're not from their district. And that is by putting your address at the very end of your communication so that they have to read the whole thing in order to get to your name and address. Um, but, you know, you can express your opinion to any member of uh, Congress. Uh, if you go to the Democratic uh, website and the Republican website uh, at, at the House and Senate level, you will see that there are links there which will allow you to communicate with all of them at one time. There is, you know, group emails that can be sent. Uh, but by defi definitely, we want to make sure that we are communicating on a regular basis with all of our elected officials from your local level all the way up to the White House to make sure that we are communicating and letting them know that this is what the voters of America feel. So uh, we'll end it up on that note. Thank you, everybody, for listening each week. This is, uh, this is the podcast Fired Up. My name is Steve. I host, and I appreciate you guys uh, showing up and attending each week. Uh, have a safe week. Stay safe. Get vaccinated. Practice your, your COVID uh, safety. As always, I appreciate your listening. Thank you, and I will speak to you all again on the next Fired Up podcast coming out 
from WJMS Media and available wherever you get your podcasts from. Take care, everybody. Stay safe.